This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Staying true to your game. Steve Kenson. And my 2018 raid on Powell's City of Books in Portland. Cogs and Commerzars is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's a clever card game of glorious robot revolution, where players control the means of production. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or Soviet robots, Cogs and Commerzars is a game you need to check out immediately. For the motherboard! To promote the game's release and support friendly local game stores, Atlas Games has a special promotion! If you buy Cogs and Commissars at Brick and Mortar Game Store and send Selfie to Atlas, they mail you special Neon Botsky promo card. Botsky joins existing faction leaders like Simulenin, Gorobachev, and the Artificial Style Intelligence. And not a moment too soon. Buy Cogs and Commissars at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash Botsky. That's Botsky with a Y. Or follow link in show notes. Remember, the revolution will be mechanized. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, but my goodness, there's a lot of books piled up on the gaming hut table, and a lot of different dice, and... There's more than one GM screen. There's not just a Peter Frampton one, there's a Jackson Brown, there's a Linda Ronstadt. The I whole the whole panoply of 70s or, double albums. Yeah. The Fleetwood Mac may even be in there somewhere, so it must be in response to this question from Patreon backer Dustin Mincy, who asks, do you two have any tips and tricks for stopping that deep desire to drop a game for a new game, or to start up a game or five while you're already GMing one or two? I know this drives my whole group nuts. I need to cut it out, but I see a game and I just gotta play it. First of all, Dustin, congratulations. You are responding exactly correctly. There is nothing <laughs> wrong with you. Your game group can just suck it. Or... or Certainly the, the uh, game industry depends... On uh, people who buy more games than they actually have time uh, to run. To uh, enjoy them, as you say, as closet drama, perhaps. Yes. And and certainly, you, you are absolutely correct that there are more cool games than you can possibly run. That any of us can possibly run. Yes. Now, I think I will have more of a personal stake in the rest of this question. If I envision that the game you are trying to stick with is by me or possibly can. Right. Uh, so uh, let us stipulate for the rest of this that, uh, of course, that it is- we want them to keep playing Knights Black Agents or a uh, Yellow King role playing game or another fine game from the minds behind this very podcast. Exactly. Uh, so and uh, I got to say off the top is this is uh, uh, not my dilemma, because uh, if you're designing role playing games as your job, uh, the thing that you're running is the thing that you need to familiarize yourself with either. Uh, because you are playtesting your own design, or uh, as will happen in a couple of days, you will be starting up a RuneQuest 
campaign because you're writing a big RuneQuest supplement and you need to refresh yourself on the, on the ways of the RuneQuest and, and see the new RuneQuest in action. Uh, so, you are a free agent, however, uh, Dustin, and you can pick whatever game you want, and your players, we can tell, uh, want to maybe get to play the same characters for, let's say, three to four sessions in a row at, at the very least. So how do you, how do you motivate yourself? And the one thing, uh, the first thing I would suggest is, uh, keep open the possibility of uh, running one shots every now and again so that uh, sometimes you will find that even with the most diligent of groups that sometimes there's a night where you fail to get quorum for your regular thing or the uh, player around whom the cliffhanger at the end of the last episode revolves um, uh, suddenly uh, has to go to uh, Sweden to take part in a boating competition. Or so China, in, say. Or China, where, wherever the boating competition is, mm-hmm. um, so that uh, you can then drop in a one-shot of the thing that you're hankering to run, and that way you're, and you can assure your players that, you, you know, next week, we're, we're back to Knights Black Agents. Uh, we'll resolve that cliffhanger. But since Leona is off in China and or Sweden, we're going to do this other thing for this one week. And it will get my Jones for doing this thing out of the way. And, of course, you can do the same. Uh, you can run one shots at uh, conventions. And uh, that way, uh, sort of have your, uh, your side game, uh, as it were, uh, without annoying your players all to the dickens because, for goodness sakes, they want to get to uh, Romania or all the way through the four arcs of Yellow King. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's it's like everything else in life, uh, and it's true not just of, of role-playing games, but of lesser art forms like cooking or movies or, or whatever. Uh, certainly we live in what has been touted as the golden age of television, where there is more actually worthwhile things on television now than anyone has any time to watch. There are a zillion great uh, novels, comic books, all of the art forms. Be we or be we not in Spengler's Autumn, we are efflorescing like crazy people. And so there is armies of good stuff out there to do. So anything that you care about, you're going to know enough about it that you want to do more than you possibly can. Your appetite will always exceed your stomach. That's just how an exciting, vibrant, late capitalist art scene operates. So um I guess the answer, much like everything else that is an inevitable part of life, is learn to sublimate. Learn to um, uh, pick and choose and uh, do the right thing. Find methods, whether that be simply a lively internal fantasy life, whereby you imagine running Bluebeard's Bride for people, even though you can't make the time for it. Or, as Robin suggests, find a side game. Also, we have uh, armies and armies of online game groups that you can go find on your uh, Roll20 or your or your wherever else uh, plenty of other uh, places to go find your your pickup role playing game in a virtual space without necessarily having to go recruit a whole other game group although i might also recommend that if you are the kind of person who's got that spare night in the week and the problem is your current game group can't make it or is sick of of your nonsense Find five more friends. Uh, maybe one of your game group is like you, a, a, a beautiful hummingbird who flits from flower to flower. And you, you, the two of you can go out and find three more people to join you for that swell sounding, uh, uh, game of, um, uh, of something by Jason Morningstar, let's say, uh, because it's probably pretty swell sounding if he did it. Um, and then you will be able to maybe have your, your hummingbird group that is 
down with playing three sessions and out of everything. And you can stick to your, your good old, uh, French novel group where they're just going to pound their way through, uh, the Dracula dossier or the Yellow King or something long form that has the unique thrills and challenges that only long form gaming can provide. That way you can sort of break up your palate, just like some days you eat Mexican food, some days you eat Chinese food. Right. And, uh, the next step, if you want to get a little fancy, is that you can drop, uh, sort of cover versions of these other games that you're hankering for into the long-running game that you've uh, committed uh, to keep going for your players. So, for example, uh, you know, you pick up Feng Shui while you're in the middle of a Dracula dossier campaign. Well, uh, you can have some hopping vampires show up. You can do a, a sort of an homage to Hong Kong action cinema within the confines of your Dracula dossier thing and even, you know, drop in maybe a Feng Shui character or two and you're not actually literally playing that game. You're probably not switching over to those rules, but you're uh, getting to play with at least something that sparks you from that other game that that is some form of inspiration. And of course, uh, especially if you don't tell your players uh, what you're doing, if you, you know, take uh, inspiration from a James Bond scenario that you've uh, dug up from the box in your attic and uh, drop it into the context of a Dracula dossier, you can have fun playing with all of those Bond tropes and the uh, players uh, won't necessarily realize that, oh, look, at the beginning we meet the bad guy and then we go to his casino and then uh, and then we go to his underground lair and they're, they're thinking that it's Dracula dossier, but you can have fun playing um, with sort of the tropes and images and, uh, you know, even some of the, the rules ideas that you find in, in James Bond or in uh, Numenera or whatever it is that's uh, tweaking your fancy this week. Um, another thing that you can do is wind up with a game or begin with a game. Uh, and this could, might be for your, your second group, or it might be that your, your core group uh, can be lured into a game that is of its very nature, uh, genre switching. So a game where you're all playing uh, dimension hopping time travelers who go back and forth amongst the realities uh, that can sort of dump you off with the same characters into uh, the, a new game. And then you play out a little chapter of that. And because you've sold the game from the beginning, from the get go as a picaresque game of shifting realities, it, it, it becomes a, a feature, not a bug that you keep being distracted by new, beautiful, shiny things. And, uh, you, you're, maybe you're biting off the tip of, of a hundred different pizza slices and never finishing. But if that's, uh, the, uh, the, the smorgasbord you sold the players on, then there's no problem. Uh, again, this, it may not work if you suddenly decide to do it in the middle of your 10 year, uh, F20 game or your ongoing, uh, game of Trail of Cthulhu or whatever that you suddenly say, and now we're going to play a fun game of World War One fighting aces, that may in fact run into some problems. But if you're in a sort of a Doctor Whovian space where your characters can, without severe damage to the campaign, pop back and forth from uh, air warfare over World War One to dungeon crawling in some fantasy realm to super future space fighting to whatever else it happens to be. And you've developed a uh, premise that lets you hang onto those same characters through all those different um, uh, regenerations or, or, or time travels, then go for it. You've, you've, you can build a campaign that is designed for just this sort of, um, uh, taster's choice ex- extravaganza. You can also take the sort of, uh, interlude idea and kind of go halfway with it in that, uh, you're not 
moving the characters from one uh, game or setting to another, uh, because that, uh, as Ken suggests, is picaresque and imposes a particular tone. But let's say you're running something more serious, and the other thing that you want to run is also somewhat serious. What you could do, for example, is, you know, let's say you're playing uh, a Dracula dossier, and then you decide that you want to uh, run... A, a straight up uh, Trail of Cthulhu uh, adventure. Now, obviously, this is not a giant leap because it's the same uh, rule system. Uh, let's say you want to do, uh, you know, a, a, the classic Call of Cthulhu uh, so that you are actually jumping rules as well as uh, setting. So what you can do is we have one session which uh, the players are uh, playing different characters, but they you tell them up front that what is happening here in this 1926 session set in Innsmouth is then going to have something to do with uh, it's happening in the same continuity as your Dracula dossier campaign. Now, you may need to sand off some of the edges because certain settings, the continuities don't really go together that well. But, you know, if you, uh, you know, you really want to play a little Cthulhu and get in there, you can either say, well, you know, the mythos is not totally operative, so my deep ones are going to have a vampiric explanation behind them. But uh, then what you can do is... Uh, you know, you've got them in the same world, but then you can play with the different rules or whatever it is that sparked your interest and, and made you really, really Jones to play uh, Call of Cthulhu when you got your new copy of the rulebook. Um, yeah, that's sort of the uh, comic book version where you're telling a bunch of different stories, but they all exist in the same continuity somehow. And it may be that you do need to have, you know, your various crisis or crossover issues or at least more explicitly tie in the one story to the other story uh, to allow your, your, your players to buy into that conceit. I guess uh, another thing you can do is just be informed by the new game, not necessarily on a level of plot and incident uh, that the, you know, you you're playing Dracula dossier, but your, your eye has been caught by uh, a new, a new fanciness out there somewhere uh, with, with spaceships and, 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 and lasers. Um, uh, and you're thinking, uh, gosh, I'd like to be playing scum and villainy, but I'm running Dracula dossier. You can take the elements out of scum and villainy that you think are super fun. Uh, and it might be a mechanical thing like you, like the shot clock. And so you say, let's try one session of Dracula dossier and let's use the, the clock mechanism from, uh, uh, scum and villainy. And, uh, let's see how that goes. And the players, maybe they won't mind you dropping in a mechanic because it's still their same character. And, uh, you, you will run it obviously with, with an aim towards everyone having the most enjoyment. Uh, however that works at your specific table, because there's nothing worse than being asked to try out a new mechanic that then makes the game worse and more boring. But you can take some of that, some of the, 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 the table feel of playing a new game and put it into your, into your old game in the same way that maybe, you know, you normally you're cooking, you're a beef and potatoes guy, but hey, for this time, let's, uh, let's have, uh, some bok choy, uh, with sesame as, as the salad. And so you're adding a little element from that other game, even if you're not leaping fully into, into playing it or even, uh, bringing in the, the same characters and, and, and setting, but some aspect of that game. Uh, can be ported over into your game without without, without losing the, the the core flavor of, of the main table activity. And for the rest, as I've said before, you have a rich internal fantasy life. God knows everyone needs one now. Uh, well, here on this podcast, we also hop from subject to subject and from uh, topic to topic. And uh, we're going to hop right on through this upcoming commercial to see what's waiting for us on 
the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? Hey, once again, it is time for Ken and or Robin to talk to someone else. And this time around, uh, both Ken and Robin are in their hotel room in Indianapolis on the day before Gen Con kicks off uh, with designer extraordinaire Steve Kenson! Woo! Thank you much. Glad to be here. Uh, so I bet the thing that is mostly on your mind these days is The Expanse. It is. It is. Uh, as our uh, Kickstarter for The Expanse is ongoing and uh, still uh, pulling heavy Gs. Yeah, you know. it is. It, um, uh, breaking through uh, ice asteroids of stretch. I, the metaphor just literally got away from me at that moment. <laughs> right. But it's doing quite well is the point I'm trying to make here. Yes. Um, uh, and so, which is good because you want a game like this to be big and pretty and full of the best kind of goodness. Mm -hmm. What kind of best goodness can people expect when they back the Kickstarter and then start getting their sweet rewards? Or rather, uh, because of the way this will land, they have already backed the Kickstarter. They've already backed the it Kickstarter. Is, already is it too late? We can't and, do it? All yeah, right. And Sadiq is on his, in his yacht in the Bahamas. Thinking back on how successful it's all been. What rubes they all were. Yes. Except he would never do that because Steve is a fine fellow. Well, he's still going to deliver the product. It's from it's his yacht. From his yacht in the Bahamas, right. which he okay. got through the practice of magic. Yes. yes. Right. Not yes. from Kickstarters. No. <laughs> because Kickstarter is wholly unreliable in that regard. As, yes. as Unlike magic. magic. Unlike magic. Well, at least as compared to magic. Right. Certainly. Yes. So... <laughs> Uh, what was the question? Again? The question is, what it's, kind of great stuff is going to be in the experience, yes. which has done so well on Kickstarter, uh, a number that can be looked up. It's so well known that we don't even need to bother saying how much it raised. Right. What's going to be, what, what's all that? It's all up on the screen. What do we see? So, in addition to the uh, handsome uh, full-color book, uh, which will be in both uh, a standard edition and uh, a special edition with a, a lovely uh, black leatherette cover and uh, a silver graphic design by our own Hal Mangold, um, 
there are a number of, of uh, additions from the, the stretch goals that have enhan- further enhanced uh, the, the product. Um, we're expecting for there to be a, a lovely uh, poster map of the, the solar system. Excellent. Uh, which we're also building out as a game aid uh, to include uh, some of the, the pre pre Sneaky like played High Frontier on it. Yeah. And to include some of the the um, pre-calculations we've done in terms of how long does it take you to get from right. Titan to Ganymede? Yeah, what's your delta V, you? you know, things like that. Um, and uh, also uh, we have a six-part um, PDF adventure campaign uh, that's in the works uh, that will basically be the contents of an entire additional book um, when it's all said and done uh, that uh, will provide... Uh, six more uh, adventures uh, building out a campaign series that will supplement the additional two adventures um, that are already slated for the core book and for the GM's kit and the third adventure that is found in the quick start uh, such that uh, there will be a, a robust amount of adventure support for Fantastic. the Expanse. Now they, this is based on the Expanse novels by uh, James S.A. Corey who are, are two people uh, one of whom was a gamer and played this as his own home campaign. It, normally, when you're dealing with licensors, there's some uh, drone in an office who is off from approving the action figures and the towels, and then he comes in and says, I don't know, role-playing game, whatever. <laughs> I have the partner paperwork. What the hell? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> but, but with this guy, I mean, he's going to have opinions and thoughts, and is that a good thing, or do you prefer the guy with the towels? Well, ultimately, it was a it was a good thing, and and we worked very closely with um, Ty and Daniel, who are the Expanse authors, uh, and uh, they did indeed have thoughts mm-hmm. uh, and uh, feedback, and you know just a a general sense of what the the game experience of the Expanse should be like, mm-hmm. um, and that was very helpful to us uh, in you know providing. Uh, a direction that would please our licensors, which is always nice to know. Right. And then also, I mean, it was written mm-hmm. by them, so they based on a game that one of them ran, so they know what the game experience of the mm-hmm. of the books is. Absolutely. They literally played it. Whereas, normally if you're adapting a book like Dune or something, you have to sort of look at it and say, what's the game experience here? You can't mm-hmm. call up Frank Herbert and say, hey, Frank Herbert, what was your Traveler game like? Right. right? <laughs> but what a game that would that would be. Right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, he was doing a lot of acid at the time. He has no idea what he was doing. Um, but yeah, the uh, so so that I mean, in terms of getting at the sort of core gameplay experience of the mm-hmm. setting, you kind of can't ask for a better resource, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and and that was that was hugely helpful uh, in terms of uh, nailing down uh, things that we wanted the the game to focus on. So, how would you encapsulate the core activity of the Expanse game? Well, the basically the in a lot of ways the expanse uh, is about uh, survival in the midst of uh, history <laughs> happening yeah, right. and unfolding around you, um, and and how you know as as you're at this pivotal moment where everything is changing, um, how do you and your your small group of friends manage to survive and prosper uh, in in the midst of all of this? Uh, and so uh, there's there's a great deal of emphasis on um, the resources that the characters have, uh, how they're going to uh, husband those resources, uh, how they're going to grow them, um, how they're going to, to survive, uh, essentially. So survival is, uh, in and of itself, a passive goal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you how did you activate the goal so that players know what to go and do rather than just to wait for history to come and punch them in the face? So there's um, a lot uh, on in terms of talking about the different types of expanse games uh, you can run and. Um, you know, we talk about the the notion of the the default being the sort of uh, free trader you know approach right. that the novels take. Mm-hmm. You know, where the characters have a ship and they're and they're going mining you know, ice and doing that stuff. Right. You know, they're they're working essentially for a living in some way as as mercenaries or couriers or you know whatever will pay the bills uh, as far as that goes. But we also talk uh, a lot about uh, the um, the other. Ways to approach uh, the expanse as a setting uh, and other things that can be going on uh, as far as whether or not the characters are, uh, you know, Earth or Martian soldiers or working for a particular government or faction. Because a lot of the heroes in the novels are sort of low level uh, government employees or, mm-hmm. or middle bureaucrats. Like there's the UN uh, uh, bureaucrat, there's the uh, um, uh, cop, basically. Mm-hmm. Is um, because the free trader model, the old uh, traveler, that's great because you're the little tiny group of people. You're on your own ship. You're setting your own rules. How do you interact with the uh, I don't say onerous bureaucracy, but the omnipresent bureaucracy of the expanse from with, within it? Mm-hmm. How do you make that a, a game uh, situation uh, necessarily? Is is there? Did you have to think about it differently in terms of designing what core activity w- was going on? Well, that's where um, a lot of uh, Things like uh, the age system model of, of looking at action encounters and exploration encounters and social encounters came in in terms of expanse activities. Uh, you know, are your characters uh, you know primarily looking at uh, a lot of social interaction? You know, with whether it be with a, you know a, a cop who's who's dealing with low life informants you know on an asteroid. Or a, a high-level UN bureaucrat who's who's you know walking the halls of power and dealing with all of the machinations that come into play there, um, you know, or you know, are your characters focused more on exploration uh, and trying to uh, find resources, uh, trying to look into opportunities? Are they focused heavily on action in some way? And obviously, different games and different game sessions are going to have a different balance. Uh, of those various components, uh, but they're all playable in their own right, um, and you can sort of mix and match them, you know, as the the different scenes, you know, of the of the story require. Cool. Uh, so uh, SF games seem to be on a bit of an upswing, mm. um, and uh, so then the and the challenge with SF, of course, is always well, what genre of SF are we playing? And of course, by mm-hmm. having it based on a particular set of novels, that answers that question. But for people who are not familiar with the expanse and are maybe going to come to it from the role playing game and then go read the books what would you how would you pitch to people the thing that is unique about this sf setting compared to others so the expanse is uh, a relative or the expanse starts out as a relatively hard sf setting um and uh tries uh to focus on uh, fairly scientific interpretations of, uh, you know, space and motion and, uh, you know, the, the settlement of the solar system and, uh, you know, all of its, you know, related things. Um, you know, its, its initial, um, uh, sort of one, you know, change sort of 
notion is the is the Epstein drive, um, and it's basically solving the the, the mass issue of um, uh, space travel. Having to drag your own fuel everywhere you go. Right. Exactly, but uh, very rapidly, um, you know, and. Minor spoiler for anybody who has not read the books or seen the show. Um, it very quickly takes a right turn um, from fairly hard SF to introducing, you know, crazy wahoo alien technology uh, that is, for all intents and purposes, magic because uh, it can do pretty much anything that the writers want it to do, um, you know, including rewrite the laws of physics. Uh, so um, it's an interesting... Um, Mixture of uh, fairly fairly hard science fiction, um, but with a really sort of terrifyingly wondrous science fiction element to it that is, that verges well into the fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, once that aspect of the setting uh, really opens up widely, uh, the the found the frontiers are are truly unlimited. So when the uh unapproachable alien uh, technology uh, can do anything how do the player how as a gm do you make sure that the players don't feel railroaded by the infinite possibility that the uh, antagonists or opposing force or however they work mm-hmm. uh, how do you how do you make them feel like you're not just uh, railroading them with the infiniteness of the, the alien tech well fortunately mm-hmm. although the alien tech Sort of has an agenda, um, at least initially uh, in the books. Um, it's it's largely a passive enabler uh, of a lot of things, um, and so certain parts of its parameters are known, um, and there are certain uh, ways in which you can safely interact with it, <clears throat> and that's essentially the the, the yellow on green lantern. Yeah, and it's essentially the, the the Kai concept of of most of the middle books of the series is is essentially humanity sitting you know in front of this you know incredibly advanced alien machine uh, and going okay we know a couple of things and we know that if we do this everyone will die and if we do this we get some really good things out of it and the rest of it we'll just maybe carefully poke around a little and see what happens right. Um, you know, but in the meantime, there's all this other cool stuff, uh, and uh, the all, all the other cool stuff that's sort of known is is where a lot of the the, the, the good juice in terms of, of campaign building lies, um, and you know it it you know really just uh, serves as a, a plot device to enable a lot of the other cool stuff we want to do, like sending the characters to another you know star system in another galaxy. So as, uh, like any great designer, you doubtless are supported by a group of uh, long-suffering players who uh, have to uh, play whatever it is that you're working on. How did your players surprise you when you ran this for them? Um, it was primarily uh, a matter of um, players are actually far more ruthless and pragmatic um, than I am. <laughs> Um, and uh, it was it was their um, willingness as a as a group to uh, throw themselves into the um, the the high concept of the setting of of pretty much being willing to do whatever it took uh, in order to to be survive and be successful 
um, they they had very few qualms. Um, <laughs> Once you put survival as the core activity, right. yeah. the, yep. you need a really strong qualm mechanic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, and the funny thing was uh, that it turned out we didn't. You know, as far as that goes, because characters who are willing to do bad things, um, you know, in order to uh, survive, actually works really well in the expanse, yeah. as it turns out. I'm here to <laughs> chew bubblegum and have qualms, and I'm all over qualms. qualms. <laughs> yes. Well, as you say, it's a realistic science fiction universe. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have fantastic elements like time travel or altruism. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, the expanse obviously is going to be occupying your main time uh, until the project is done. Mm. Is there another thing that you have coming up on the Steve Kenson Event Horizon, or do you go back to Mutants and Masterminds for another uh, a series of uh, soft uh, kisses down its back, or is there more wonderful Kensonness that we can't even comprehend from our puny human perspective? Well, uh, right now, I I actually just finished uh, a Mutants and Masterminds project, which was the Basic Heroes Handbook right. uh, that we've got uh, here at Gen Con, uh, and now in pre-order. Uh, and that is um, the introductory, you know, uh, very kind hand-holding product that that um, chases away all of the um, scary math uh, mm-hmm. involved uh, in uh, the uh, character design part of Mutants and Masterminds, right? Um, and uh, makes the the startup of the game much uh, more approachable, more plug and play. Um, yes, yeah, much more plug and play. Um, and is a is a terrific introduction uh, to the the game. Um, it's a uh, Crystal Frazier developer Crystal Frazier's uh, first big uh, development project uh, for M and M, and it's a terrific book. Um, and uh, I'm also uh, working with Onyx Path on the new edition of Aberrant, uh, for which I am a lead designer, uh, and uh, we are uh, in the uh, just finished up the uh, first draft stages of things and are uh, cool. proceeding through development on that. So that's been a, a fun project to work on. So you're just ruining Earth over and over and over again. As often as I possibly <laughs> yeah. can, yeah. You, 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 people keep him away from Earth. It's not a good scene. Yeah, so, so your watchword is start with Earth. Exactly. Steve's is destroy Earth. Destroy Earth, Earth ruin, and then move on. wreck it and move yeah. on. Yeah. So as a final, more general question, uh, we've all been doing this for about roughly the same period of time. How disorienting do you find the new golden age of tabletop role-playing? In some regards, I find it very disorienting. Um, I'm... I mean, you forget, Steve was always (laughs) good-looking. Steve never belonged (laughs) among us. So now that we have young, good-looking, hip people... Steve is more, I think it's more like, finally the plane has we, come. We can send him in as a, as your emissary. He was marooned on an island for 25 years, and <laughs> finally his own civilization has come for him. <laughs> Yet at it's the, you and I that have the cargo cult reaction to all of this. <laughs> Yet at the same time, I, I still am, I still find myself somewhat bewildered by the 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 streaming culture yeah. and and the the notion of watching other people play role playing games, um, I I still haven't quite gotten on board with that. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, it's all, great. Yeah, I mean, but, don't you know anyone who's got a hobby? Great, and yeah. if they've got our hobby, even better. But it's an odd thing to do with your time to me. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, it was it was very interesting. At um, we were at PAX Unplugged last uh, November, um, and uh, the that was a weird crowd. Right. Well, I was just going to say the crowd there skewed much younger, um, and there were clearly a lot of attendees who were fans of of tabletop streams, um, who would very excitedly come, you know, check out our books. And be like, this is really amazing. What do I do with it? Yeah, I love role play. I love role play. What is it? Right. Yeah. How do I do it? Right. And you're saying, you know, the thing you've been watching. watching do that. that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 it was it was literally like what must have been like being at a game convention in 1982 when you had people who'd heard about the hobby mm-hmm. and didn't understand it, but were super excited into it and excited it. about it. It, it's a very strange sensation to have this happening and, and to have this sort of new uh, methodology by which everyone can be part of our little thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to, to see it starting up. I mean, not that you and I are, are particularly strangers to Future Shock. The notion of being tired of superhero television must have been... <laughs> right. You know, when, too you, much. when you and I were kids, it would be yeah. like, that will literally never yeah, happen. There, there were too many faithful adaptations of comic books. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. 13-year-old yeah. me would have never believed that. Right, yeah. It's uh, it, it's it's in, it, it's just amazing, uh, in many ways, the sort of um, uh, you know Pokemon generation taking over the world, uh, and good for them. Someone ought to. Uh, but... To be still sort of the, the the Moses seeing the promised land open up is, mm. is a weird experience, right? It is. It, it's it's very strange, and it's it's still figuring out how to interact with that that doesn't come off as "Hey, fellow kids!" Hey, fellow kids. <laughs> you know, thank God for Steve Buscemi giving us all the the, the word we needed to understand it, it, it because. Um, they they want to be part of it. We want them to be part mm-hmm. of it. Everyone loves everyone, but it's just th- this sort of cliff that we have to sort of climb down or up or some direction, mm-hmm. figuring out what what it is they. How can we help you to be happier? Is, right. is I guess the question. We right. don't necessarily know that. But Steve, at least you got a yacht out of it, so that's yes. great. You do get the yacht, and it yes. is lovely. Uh, so uh, before you head off to your yacht, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. 
news, including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln gallon by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Stay true to your podcast, just like you would to your school, next to Patreon backers... Jeremy Forbang. Daniel Markwig. Aryan Poutsma. Derek McMullen. And Drew Eichholz. And now we begin a segment with a terrible groaning. Not the groaning of ghosts or ghouls, but rather the groaning of Ken's bookshelf, because he is back from Powell's City of Books, as is his wont when he is in Portland for the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. He goes to Powell's Books, and when he's done with Powell's Books, he has a great big pile of volumes and tomes, which he will uh, caress and tell us all about. And uh, so without further ado, let's hop right in uh, to uh, something of a... Uh, we're still uh, we're a little past Halloween, but I think we still have some candy corn in our pumpkins, and therefore can start by contemplating Cashin Horror Cinema, the best scary movies of all time, edited by Paul Duncan and Jürgen Miller. And, and one of the big... Uh, joys of a book like this, uh, if you're already knowledgeable in the subject matter, is bitterly disagreeing exactly. with the conclusions of the authors. Uh, is, is that why you picked up this particular uh, version of this uh, time-honored format? I picked it up because I'm a fan of Toshin's and because it was on sale uh, at the time I bought it. It was not yet past Halloween. Um, and so it, you, you get the Tashin book for 20 bucks. If you're at all interested in the topic, it's worth picking up just because the production values are so lovely. And it's always good, I think, to see what, um, uh, someone outside the Anglophone tradition thinks about, uh, horror. Now, obviously, Paul Duncan, uh, name like that, he's gotta be straight up in, in your mainstream, but Jürgen Muller, uh, brings an appreciation, let's say, of flesh for Frankenstein that you do not share, uh, to the table. <laughs> And, and so there is, there is a great uh, degree of joy in seeing that. The other uh, nice thing about this particular book, uh, it, by the way, it doesn't list them in order. So they're, they're not going to just straight up and say Suspiria is the greatest horror film of all time. Oh, so it's, it's not the straight up right into the vein arguing right. with their No, list. it's, it's not yeah. the, it's not the, the, the pure anger that you, that you need today in this, in this busy uh, life. But it, uh, they, it lists. Ghoulies number one. What are they talking about? What are, what are they crazy people? It lists them chronologically like a bunch of jerks. So, uh, that's, that's all well and good. But at the beginning of the section, they go through 10 different sort of ur themes of horror and look at and trace that theme. So the, they say the vampire. And so what does, where does horror cinema start with a vampire? And they run through vampire cinema or they do it with haunted houses or they do it with revenant dead bodies or, or whatever else. And so that is a, that, that could have been the whole book as far as I'm concerned. Just take the rest of the, you know, listing 50 horror movies and explaining why they're great part, which is fine, dump that and go for the thematic section. So, as always, uh, Toshin has um, uh, has more than earned their sawbuck from me. Next up, from uh, uh, fictive horrors to the, I think, what is the effect of 
actual terror on the uh, human body, I would assume, is Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear by Margie Kerr. Now, this uh, I picked up uh, because I thought that it might have a little more of the science of fear and a little less of the chilling adventure. But, uh, Robin, you are a devotee of the um, popular science book, as am I. And you know that the great danger is that the journalist or other um, uh, pleasant, no doubt, person uh, who wrote the book sold it as, I'm going to go do all this scary stuff. And talk about my responses to it. Now, Margie Kerr has worked in a haunted house forever, so uh, she's got real uh, haunting chops. I'm not saying that she's an outsider who doesn't deserve to be terrified within an inch of her life. I'm just saying there is not enough science. There is a little too much adventure in uh, Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. That said, uh, maybe you don't have time to read a whole bunch of science, so you can pick out a couple of pages of, of hard science on any one of these topics and be about as good to go as you need to be either to do real research somewhere or just drop it into a, a game somehow. Uh, this title is familiar to me and I'm trying to dive into the recesses of my memory to work out whether I have read it or read enough of it to stop reading. Yeah. But it sounds, it sounds either familiar, one is possible, in, including the too much. If we were going to go into digression, how about pop science? Uh, one of my, uh, pet peeves is that, that so many of them are just about sort of experiential journalism and uh, all sorts of, you know, just give me the information. Man. The, so. that someone at some point said that's the way that people will be reading science as if uh, their identification figure, the journalist, has gone and touched a bunch of bacteria instead of just writing about how cool bacteria are. I, I think it's the answers that it is hard to, well, first of all, there's been a couple of very successful books in that vein yeah. and also that uh, I think it's hard to find a science book editor who cares as much about science as scientists or the readers of pop science books. Yeah. And so they want to say, uh, make me interested in this topic that I am interested in only because I'm waiting for a spot to open up in the fiction department. Um, <laughs> mini editorial ended. Uh, let us move on uh, to the to the tradecraft. That's, that's, that's the value you get from Ken's bookshelf is the occasional uh, elbows up on the table and, look, I got to tell you. Occasional <laughs> mini rant. Uh, let's move on to the tradecraft uh, hut section of your book pile to the assassination complex by... Jeremy Scahill. Now, this is a macro uh, uh, rant. Uh, as I have said, one of the things I always say is that if you look, if you want to read about a topic for gaming, find an angry lefty. And Jeremy Scahill is an angry uh, lefty-lish reporter. And in 2013, someone involved in the drone program dumped a briefing document into the uh, WikiLeaks uh, ocean. And uh, Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept fished it out. And turned it into this very book, uh, The Assassination Complex, in which Scahill sort of goes uh, and, and takes the, this uh, data dump as his core and then builds out sort of an explainer about how the drone program works. And uh, how it worked back in 2013 is pretty much how it works now, one assumes. Um, what you, you can't imagine that uh, somehow in the Pentagon they said, you know what? We're bored, you know, blowing up a bunch of terrorists and their weddings. Let's go do something else. Uh, the drone program is the way it is because it gives you the um, uh, ability to act at a distance without the necessity to plan or think very hard about that ability, which uh, I think a, a, a cursory study of military history might say is not a long-term solution. 
But uh, Jeremy Scahill is much madder about it than uh, most people, I guess. And this certainly is a great uh, resource for people who want to, A, get mad about the drone program, or B, involve the drone program somehow in a realistic-seeming fashion in their games. And it certainly, you know, talks a great deal about uh, taskings and, and all the other cool stuff about that. There's little, uh, lots of infographics so that people who, um, uh, are not, uh, deep dyed in this stuff can sort of follow along from the beginning. It's very much a, a drone program 101 and also aren't you mad? And then that's a really great combo for a book. Because of course, after all the much of the point of the, the drone program or one of the main points of it is that, uh, it, is supposed to exist at the margins of people's consciousness and right, uh, yeah. and and not get their dander up. So uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the people on the droning and not the being droned in. I think that those yes. people's dander are pretty up. Absolutely. Um, so here we have uh, next on the list. I can I can feel vicariously the weight of what is clearly a massive tome because uh, you've laid out how many pages of text it contains. <laughs> the Secret World: A History of Intelligence. By Christopher Andrew. I can see that it's unusual in that it's got 760 pages, and as you say in the notes here, it only gets to World War II on page 603, and yeah. uh, World War One on page 497, which implies that the vast, usually undercovered portion of espionage is much of the focus here. Exactly. Um, and that is the reason that I, first of all, Christopher Andrew is the real deal. He's uh, one of the guys who sort of edited and put together the Matrokin archive. Um, he wrote uh, Defense of the Realm, the authorized history of MI5, which is a pretty great book for what it is. He did a history of the KGB back in 1990, which is perhaps not quite the right time to have done it, but then uh, came out with the Matrokin Archive a little later. He's been a historian of intelligence, like I say, basically for his whole career. Um, and this uh, takes the normal flaw of histories of espionage or histories of intelligence, of having one paragraph at the front where they say, oh, you know, there were spies in the Bible, and then it jumps yeah. right into... <laughs> to be sure, know, they're Romans. <laughs> to be sure. Uh, the Chinese also practiced espionage, meanwhile, at Bletchley Park, and then it just jumps right into what the author actually wants to talk about, which is usually World War II and the Cold War, which are certainly the sort of golden age of, of spying, or at least of spying lore. But uh, Christopher Andrew has manfully contained that urge, possibly by having gotten his yayas out in the previous dozen books that I've mentioned. And this actually is a global history of intelligence. It, it talks at, at least intelligently about uh, Islamic and Chinese intelligence in the pre-modern era. It uh, has whole chapters on Rome, on the ancient Greeks, on medieval intelligence. It talks about the good old Venetians who are uh, the, the, the sort of um, uh, super spy masters of the Renaissance world. Uh, there's plenty of good material uh, in the first 500 pages of the thing. Uh, and you only get to the 20th century, not just World War One, only to the 20th century by page 500 out of two uh, out of 760. So if you have any interest in the history of the uh, of the field and uh, certainly if you want to use it in any kind of gaming context, this is the book that you have been waiting for. Uh, it is still not a, uh, you know, uh, uh, soup to nuts, how to do tradecraft on the ground type of book, but it is very much a who was doing it and to whom type of book that uh, the field has pretty much 
desperately needed uh, forever. And so good for Christopher Andrew for biting the bullet, going through and, and sorting through all these individual papers by individual scholars and turning it into a resume of the topic. So well done, uh, Christopher. May more KGB guys cozy up to you with cool stories. Uh, this makes me think that I should do like a trade craft hut where I – uh, randomly generate a number between uh, one and four ninety six, and then <laughs> ask you to d- deal with whatever topic is on that page. I, w- I would. I-, I think that a Christopher Andrew Hut would be an excellent uh, sub hut to dive into at some point. Perhaps the audience will want more to be right. told more. Uh, next up, we have unconventional flying objects by Paul R. Hill, and uh, uh, note that it's unconventional, not unidentified. So is this? Actual weird aircraft not in the Elliptony hut? Well, yes and or no. Uh, the, the shtick of unconventional flying objects is that, uh, the guy who wrote it is a aerodynamicist who worked for NASA as a development engineer, uh, as, a you know, manager of, of part of the, of the uh, aerodynamics program there. Uh, chief of the Applied Materials and Physics Division at, at Langley Research Center. So, obviously a guy with his fingers on the pulse of how do you fly things. And apparently, at some point during the early days of UFO time, Hill began to run across UFO, UFO sightings, because, of course, they were being brought to NASA back in the early days. And then he had his own UFO sighting uh, in 1952, and said, goodness, that was weird. I wonder if you could do what I just saw those things do and began to figure out how to reverse engineer all of these UFO uh, uh, creations and began to um, uh, look into the what technologically it would take to create the effect that he saw. So the notion uh, that he began with is someone out there is building super advanced aircraft and I can reverse engineer and figure out how to do it, not knowing that, of course, the someone was the CIA and they already knew how to do it. But as he began doing this, he became, uh, and this is what happens, kids, if I can ever <laughs> impress anything on you, don't do the research, never think too hard. Because um, uh, what happened is he began to go deeper and deeper down the UFO rabbit hole. He began to believe in... Um, uh, actual extraterrestrials. I knew there was a rabbit hole coming. He had, um, another UFO sighting in 1962 and began to build not a, how would the Soviets have built this, uh, engine, but what are the common factors of all of these UFOs that must be explained by a single extraterrestrial civilization? And on that basis, this is a really good book because it takes, you know, the sort of, whole corpus up till 1990, I guess, of UFO sightings, or maybe up till 1970. And um, he tries to say, all right, what are the performance characteristics of this? Just like if you'd been observing a Soviet bomber and you say, well, we can guess that its range is thus. We have, we guess it is the kind of an engine. It has the kind of turning radius. What do we know about how that bomber has to have been built? How does, how does that rocket have to have been built? You take that same, uh, sort of uh, reverse, reverse engineering thought and you apply it to uh, flying saucers. And sure enough, he comes up with all manner of cool um, uh, technical specifications. Uh, so if you are playing, I think a, uh, 
of a slightly harder core uh, Moondust Men type game. This is very much a handout that you can either give to players or keep cuddled up to your chest to come up with um, uh, cool dialogue for NPCs to spout. Uh, next up, we're uh, into the uh, the crime blotter as we move through our various segments randomly through your pile of books here. Uh, for The Grim Reapers, The Anatomy of Organized Crime in America by Ed Reed. And I gather this is now a period book because uh, it was written in 68. Is that correct? Yeah. Ed Reed is the, is the guy who um, uh, co-wrote, who co-wrote uh, The Green Felt Jungle, which was the book in 1963 that tore the uh, the mask off Las Vegas and revealed that <gasps> it was run by mobsters. Um, not perhaps as big a reveal in 1963 or now, but, uh, he became sort of a, um, uh, a mobsterologist. And after the green felt jungle, his next book, uh, went from Las Vegas elsewhere in America to become as the subtitle says the anatomy of organized crime. And yes, it's a period piece, but, uh, you'll note, uh, that the date of 1968, is the period in which he's discussing. So it becomes a valuable fall of Delta green resource. Uh, you can uh, turn to pretty much any city in America or any major city in America and find out at least what Ed Reed thought was going on, which can give you uh, the sort of some uh, at that at, at, at least it'll give you some cool names to drop and possibly some of the little stories that he uncovers. Because, again, as a journalist, he's looking for that sort of telling detail that he can hang a narrative on uh, can also be things that you can uh, prod at and find the secret, even more horrible truth beneath. Right. Because as uh, when we were talking about uh the uh, Counterspy magazine that finding a source from the era is great because it gives you what is known then and what is thought then, which may not be what is uh, either known or remembered later. And it may be uh, more interesting than what is uh, figured out later because at the time people are being drawn to the cool story, not necessarily uh, oh, no, that wasn't a true thing. That was just a aggrandizing mob informant saying stuff. Uh, next up, uh, we have uh, a book that uh, it's called Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist. Uh, the subtitle on the cover is and other strange but true tales from American history. But an alternate subtitle would be Ken. I know you're going to buy this book. And it's by <laughs> Robert Damon Schneck. Now, Robert Damon Schneck is a, a scholar of Fortiana uh, who uh, is of the of the mind that the most fun you can have with one of these cool stories is you can dig down to the original, at the very least, the original journalism from the time. You can, you, you try and find the actual facts underneath the crazy story. He has a, a great book called, um, uh, The President's Vampire, uh, which is sort of the, uh, also in the same form in that it takes a bunch of cool anecdotes from American history and then, uh, drills down to the actual story. So, uh, we used the American Vampire uh, quite extensively, as it turned out, in Dracula dossier. Uh, and this is the story that sort of shows up in the Brooklyn Eagle and says, hey, uh, the president pardoned a vampire. And everyone's like, uh, what? And that becomes a, a great knockoff for a bunch of things. And then you can um, uh, dive down into the pages of, of Robert Damon Schneck's book and read the actual story behind what was sadly just a sad and creepy murder. But still president's vampire right there in the title right well these days if the president pardoned a vampire it would 
like be on page 34. Yeah, this is, it's, it's, it, it was a bigger deal back when Benjamin yeah. Harrison did it. Uh, as with so many things, um, uh, Benjamin Harrison, quite the guy, but this book takes the same sort of thing where there are, um, uh, events, uh, such as, uh, a, a woman who fought the antichrist, uh, a Bigfoot encounter in a place called ape Canyon, a guy who sort of made a machine, to decapitate yourself and then was found in his hotel room. Guess what? Uh, <laughs> so it's, there is, it's impressive that it folds out into, you can do it in a hotel room. It, well, I mean that what's the point it, of building a machine for self decapitation that yeah. you have to keep in a special room, Robin convenience is what the customer wants. There's uh, a lot of wonderful stuff that basically, uh, Schneck would read something in probably a Ripley's Believe It or Not, or maybe the pages of uh, Charles Ford and say, I'll bet there's more to that story. And even if there's less to that story, the part where you look through all the story is fun in and of itself. He's a, he's a good writer. He's a great researcher. And, um, uh, he certainly knows a, uh, a, a weird story when, uh, when he sees one. So, uh, I very much recommend. Um, uh, diving into Robert Damon Schneck's, uh, first, his first book, The President's Vampire and Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist is the same thing, but even more so. And, uh, back to the, uh, tradecraft hut. It's secret warriors, key scientists, codebreakers, and propagandists of the Great War by Taylor Downing. That's quite a wide swath of people. Uh, what's the uh, angle on this one? Uh, the angle on this one, sadly, is that these guys are such secret warriors that none of them are warriors at all. Uh, you would expect that a book called Secret Warriors would have one, count it, one spy in it. It does not. So... Uh, if you are looking for finally the book on World War One intelligence that you've been craving, uh, go back and find a chapter of Christopher Andrews book. Uh, this is not it. This talks about basically the boffins and, uh, it includes within the world of the boffin, the intellectual, also the, um, uh, propagandist and the public, uh, opinion molder, which did in fact become a big thing during the great war. Uh, but, uh, this also, looks pretty much entirely at the British experience. So when they say of the great war, they mean of the British in the great war, not the Americans who had their own wonderful propagandists and, uh, and such, not the Germans who had some um, uh, pretty great code breakers and scientists, but just the British. So, uh, it is much less than the title promises it, but if you are looking for, um, uh, your 1917 Bletchley Park, I guess this is where you would look. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's time for us to, uh, uh, briefly, uh, check out another commercial and then, uh, come right back to tackle the second part of your exciting pile of books. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes 
two full-color rule books. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? And we're back. Ken's bookshelf would not be complete without at least one Osprey book. Uh, So this time you brought back from your book raid, Osprey Raid 22, Decatur's Bold and Daring Act by Mark Landis. Uh, For those who don't know what this bold and daring act was, I bet you're going to tell us. I am. Uh, Lieutenant Stephen Decatur and a team of uh, expert uh, Minimax player characters broke into Tripoli Harbor in a small boat. The Barbary pirates had captured the pride of the American Navy, the USS Philadelphia, and had held it in the harbor. They were waiting to refit it to send it back out to fight against the American Navy, which at that time was at war with the Barbary pirates. And Decatur's mission was to capture the ship or failing that, and indeed he failed to capture it, burn it to the waterline, and that, by God, he did. Horatio Nelson, who knew a little something about things, declared it the most bold and daring act of the age. Decatur became, you know, the, uh, a national hero, and I think a city in Ohio. Uh, <laughs> and this is another great Osprey book that sort of, you know, lays out who did what when, and uh, the Raid series, I think, is probably the most uh, immediately gameable of any of these, because it takes these small unit actions that you can follow along and um, uh, either your characters are not going to Tripoli Harbor, but into Tunis Harbor and they're not Americans, but maybe they're British or French, but whatever it is, you can have that same sort of, what is it like in 1804 to bust into a Barbary pirate Harbor and do uh, and get up to activities. And that is the sort of thing that player characters of course are going to be doing. So uh, lots of good material on that. And, Again, well-researched, well-written, the standard Osprey excellence, uh, complete with cool art of burning boats, uh, which everyone loves to see. Yeah, it's, uh, again, the Raid series is, is the one that I think makes the most immediate RPG sense, although obviously all Osprey books are secretly role-playing books. They don't, just don't necessarily know it yet. And uh, and some of them more so than others. Yeah. Um, Next up, we'll go further back in true of regular role playing books, quite frankly. Yes. Uh, we go further back in time to Alexander the Great Murder in Babylon by Graham Phillips. And I know what you're going to say, Robin. You're going to say, Graham Phillips, isn't he that guy who writes of the Holy Grail and the Virgin Mary and other nonsense? And I'm going to say, yes, Robin, he is. He is a person with no, (laughs) how do you want to say, uh, um, uh, governor (laughs) on his, on his, uh, system. But, what he does do is he's, he's uh, not a fun ruiner. I think it's is what you're he's, saying. No, he's a fun enabler. He's a fun let's, maker. Let's put it that way. But one of the things that he does to enable his fun is at the end of every chapter, he will list what we have learned in this chapter. And if you don't want to read a whole Graham Phillips book, you can buy a Graham <laughs> Phillips book and just read part of a Graham Phillips book. Because at the end, there's little bullet points, and he says, "This is what we've learned in the chapter." Now, I'm the first to admit we may not have actually learned that. 
We may have learned it through spurious methodology. That is a sneaky way of, of sticking some assertions in, right? Yeah. That, that you, uh, if you can rely on people to only read the pricey and then they'll, uh, accept the reasoning behind it. That's, uh, yeah. that's, that's pretty slick. It and is I say slick. this as someone who's written a couple of books with a section called how to pretend you've read this book. And <laughs> exactly. Well, it's a valuable, it's a valuable skill and people who didn't go to grad school often believe you have to read the whole book and they, they, the sooner they can be disabused of that notion, the better. Um, not to spoilers, but, uh, Graham Phillips fingers Roxanne, uh, Alexander's, uh, beautiful Sogdian wife as the murderer in this case. Um, many people have said that Alexander's sudden death in Babylon could not possibly have been caused by alcoholism and malaria because whoever died of alcoholism and malaria in a <laughs> tropical swamp, no one, uh, he yeah. must have been poisoned. And, uh, even at the time there was suspicions that, uh, Cassander, who was one of the generals might've had a hand in it. Aristotle might've done it from far away using his secret knowledge of poisons. Olympias might've done it. Was it was a big thing back then. It must be uh, said. Because she was uh, mad that her son wasn't paying her enough attention. Lots of people, uh, had reason, not just Persians to see Alexander the great kick off. And, um, uh, Graham Phillips's theory is that only Roxanne has access to strychnine because strychnine, at that time, the Nux Vomica plant doesn't grow anywhere except for the high mountain regions on the border between Sogdia and India, where Roxanne would have been. She would have known about them. She would have been able to harvest them and use them. And um, uh, Phillips says that the death of Hephaestion was her practicing uh, and then deciding, well, instead of just killing Alexander's boyfriend, why don't I kill Alexander and solve a problem for myself? An ironclad case. Case closed. Yes. Overlooking the fact that of all people in the known world of 323 BC, Roxanne had the least possible motive for murdering the guy who was literally the only thing keeping her from being murdered by a Macedonian general. So well done, Graham Phillips. Another excellent investigation. And this one actually doesn't involve the Holy Grail or, or um, uh, magic comets or any other, any other thing. Well, you just don't get involves... original theories by following basic logic. Right. Exactly. That's you not get a regular get theory that everybody else already has. Right. No, you, you, you can't, you can't sell a book by just saying, oh, it turns out it was malaria. You have to go the extra mile, and that's what the Graham Phillips difference is. Next up, we have a, a title that I think the marketing department had something to do with. The Discovery of Middle Earth, Mapping the Lost World of the Celts by Graham Robb. Uh, so this is, you got, you're drawn in by your desire for halflings, but Celts, they're, they're pretty cool too. They're just as magical as halflings, really. Uh, and poor Graham Robb, God bless him, knows that. The, there is the very first chapter, he's like, I know that when you see the word Celt in the cover of something, you think the guy's gone banana crazy for druids and Stonehenge and magical rituals. But and there were yes, real Celts too, man. <laughs> there were real Celts. Those. And just because my book is going to go bananas for druids and Stonehenge doesn't mean <laughs> that it's not real. <laughs> and poor Graham Robb uh, has the... I'm going to say he is exactly straddling the sensible and the not sensible in this book, because his sensible theory is the Celts, just like lots and lots of other ancient cultures, organized their uh, large scale architecture, be they cities or uh, monuments along the, the paths of the sun. So that when the summer solstice comes along or the winter solstice, you have a special effect and everyone gets to enjoy it. Uh, they either enjoy it ritually or they just enjoy the fun of having uh, the sunset right down the middle of their city. So far, so good. He then says, and also the Celts organized all of their cities on a 
large scale pattern across Europe, uh, using basically dead reckoning, ignoring the fact that there aren't compasses in Celt <laughs> times and the fact that once you start drawing lines on a map, you can prove anything. So he has ley lines, <laughs> but they're old school ley lines. They're not currents of mystical energy. They're just the Celts happen to line up all their cities in a row, and you can't say they didn't. Well, if there's anything that I think of when I think Celts, I think central planning. Exactly. I think uh, organizing huge numbers of people over a vast space uh, and not someone getting mad that Aurora Ricks uh, over the, in the next hill told him where to put his city, and he's not going to do that by God. By gum, uh, so yeah, I think that um, uh, on every level, uh, Rob's thesis falls apart. But the construction of it is a beautiful thing to watch while it happens, and lots of cool notions. If you did want to put ley lines, even old, uh, fun, magic, new age ley lines into your game, uh, Graham Rob has given you ample excuse. There is a a book that came out. Uh, well, actually, it didn't come out. That was the fun thing about it. That uh, noticed that a lot of Celtic places have names like Elysia. And tried to put them all on a map and realized that they made a big old cross if you like put a darker ink on the ones you wanted. And it, it was a, <laughs> that always a helps big, with, with cross making. It was, it was a big cool, uh, a book and the, the copies of the book were bombed by the Germans, not on purpose. They were bombing everything and they hit the, the, uh, the printing plant or where all so these books the story were says. So the story says, but, um, uh, the book was famously lost and I think it drove a generation of lay researchers mad that they couldn't get their hands on that book. And I think that, uh, maybe Graham Robb is subconsciously, let us say, uh, why not introduce other things that don't exist in our discussion <laughs> of Celtic ley lines, um, subconsciously attempting to feed that appetite with this, uh, fine, uh, work. But this murdered book is trying to immunitize itself throughout time and, and recapitulate itself in the work. Exactly. Of other uh, if only Graham Phillips were here to bullet point that theory. Well, at the end of the podcast, we'll tell you what we've already learned. We've tell you we, exactly. We'll go through it. Um, well, you've set a theme here uh, by raising the perennial question in Bookshelf as to uh, scholarly or fun enabler. And I think everything else in the rest of the pile, uh, that question applies to. The next one is lost histories in search of vanished places, treasures, and people by Joel Levy. Scholarly or fun enabler? Um, I think it's, uh, the guy wants to be a scholar. I, I don't think that he's making stuff up or being a crazy person, but he's very much, what is fun? What can I say about the fun thing? So he knows Atlantis is fun. He knows the Holy Grail is fun. He knows that Amelia Earhart is fun. He knows that Captain Kidd is fun. He knows that shipwrecks are fun. He knows that lost plays of Shakespeare are fun. Anything that anyone has ever lost, including things that never were, he is happy to go and, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say superficial research because that's un unkind, but I'm going to say research with an eye towards comprehensive scope and fun enabling, but not crazy people research. So he's sort of in, in the, in the pop, uh, geography business, I guess it, it right. would be. So what I'm hearing is that if you'd been commissioned to write this book, you would have taken somewhat longer. Yeah. I would have taken uh, probably a, a good deal longer. Thanks so much for pointing that out. Because of course the fine quality of your work. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Um, so next up, uh, we have a classic elliptonic, uh, writer and, and pop science writer, Willie Lay 
with exotic zoology. Yeah. Uh, Willie Lay, um, I assume everyone knows the, the Willie Lay story. You should say Willie because he's a German. He was one of the first uh, people out the door after Hitler took over. Um, he was a rocket uh, enthusiast and uh, sort of a, a polymath studying all kinds of science and uh, realized fairly early that he was not going to be in a good place uh, when uh, the Nazis took over. So he scampered out of there in 1935, uh, moved to America and began writing popular science basically in order to, you know, feed himself and discovered, Oh, I have a great talent for this. And so he combines the sort of, you know, Teutonic, uh, Vive Lao Tzu Singh with the, I have to sell stuff to newspapers in 1940, uh, for a really great combo of, uh, fact and fiction. So if a theory is exciting, but may or may not be true. Willy Lay will tell you in loud words it is exciting and then say, but it is probably not true, but who can say yeah. because it is so exciting. Yeah, what we've not actually learned in this section is. Right. Yes. Uh, this is what we haven't actually learned, but wouldn't it be neat? Yeah. So he is uh, very fond of sort of coming up with seemingly rational explanations for dragons and yetis and uh, other wonderful things, uh, uh, giant squids, and um, uh, he just sort of digs around in his capacious grab bag of fun. So he's a complete package. He's the fun enabler and the fun ruiner in one. Yeah, he he, he does them both at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, and he does that uh, throughout his, his writing. Um, he has another book on uh, amazing engineering feats that were uh, proposed. I think it's called Engineer's Dreams. So he talks about the guy who wants to dig a hole through the Sahara Desert and make a giant lake there. And at some point, he probably says, by the way, this would never work. But who cares? It's so much right. fun to imagine. So we should talk about specifically about exotic zoology. Right. Yeah. And specifically in exotic zoology, um, he goes into, like I just said, a bunch of cryptids and uh, legendary beasts. He's sort of predating the great cryptid explosion that comes along after the war with Ivan Sanderson. So this sort of gives you that first look at the, the sea serpent mythology before uh, Heuvelmans gets his hands on it and the Yeti before it gets uh, all Tom slicked up and all the other wonderful uh, things like that. So it's cryptozoology and legendary as well. So there's uh, the vegetable lamb uh, that the medievals believed was the source of cotton uh, that, uh, that he talks about that, uh, for example. So lots of things that maybe we're not as fond of or we're not as familiar with now. Um, and, uh, tosses in some magic islands, uh, just, uh, just to keep everyone honest. Well, you gotta have a magic island for your vegetable sheep. Um, exactly. Next we have science of the magical from the Holy Grail to love potions to superpowers. By Matt Kaplan. Uh, is this in the Villy Lay tradition? This is, if, if Matt Kaplan were a better writer, it would be in the Villy Lay tradition. It is, um, uh, someone told him, uh, that, uh, talk about the marketing department. They said, I like your book about the science of magic, but put more superpowers in it. So all of the magical stuff also has references to, you know, Thor and Iron Man. So whatever. But the basic notion is he goes to something that magic can do, like make you immortal. And he says, how close could actual science have gotten to doing this? So our old buddy Mithridates comes in for a, um, uh, for a look, see, and the can, uh, magic make you immune to poison and do unicorn horns work and things like that. And he comes up with, for example, the theory that if you make your, a bowl out of calcium carbonate, it will precipitate the arsenic out of uh, liquid. And uh, this, the science should work, but when he tries to do it, 
it doesn't happen. So he's like, maybe I did it wrong. Maybe ancient wine is a different alcohol content than our modern wine. Uh, so it's sort of a Mythbusters-y type approach, except instead of trying to disprove magic, he's trying to get as close to magic as you can with popular science science. Um, it's, it, it, it's more science and less here was my fun adventure than, uh, say the, uh, uh, screen book, but it's still a little bit superficial. If you, what you were really hoping for is a guy who gets down into the nitty gritty and says, all right, how do you turn into a bear? I want to know the science of bear turning. Um, he's not going to give you that. <laughs> yeah. In fairness, that that's a big remit. Um, so finally we come to phantom armies of the night, the wild hunt and the ghostly processions of the undead by Claude Lecoteau. Claude Lecoteau is a weird case in the in the magic war of fun haver versus fun ruiner. He is, uh, I should begin by saying, a genuine real historian. Um, he is a professor emeritus at the Sorbonne, so not some lame university like a real university. He is the chairman of the German civilization and literature department, or was. He's not some goofball, but in the great tradition of French scholarship, he gets way out over his skis a lot. And it is not, uh, I, I think his reputation is perhaps not uh, helped a great deal by the fact that in America, his translations are published by the wonderful people of Inner Traditions Books. And Inner Traditions is where you go if you're worried that the font in your Llewellyn book is not big enough. <laughs> <laughs> if, if if you think, gosh, I, I, I don't think that there's enough white space in my book of, of grail magic, I should go to inner traditions and get a, a book with even less text in it. Well, that, that's where all the secret truth is, is hidden in the white space. It, it is. that that That's true. That's why you have to go out into the, the Himalayas or the Arctic to, to get the wisdom and bring it back. Now, like I you, say, you Claude, need room for your mad scrawlings in the margin. Yeah, Claude Lecato is a is a real scholar and a real historian, but... His belief system seems to have ossified somewhere around 1948, uh, so when he was five. And uh, the notion that all of these sort of mythological structures and folklore beliefs go back to pagan uh, ritual and pagan uh, cultural practices. Now, some of the things that he studies probably do. I mean, the Wild Hunt looks like it should have some sort of pagan uh, construction and you can read things, uh, in some Hellenistic texts of the Hecatea, which is supposedly the goddess Hecate leading the parade of the dead. But there's a, there's more than a slip between Hecate leading a parade of the dead and, uh, Hearn the hunter charging across the sky in his horse at the head of a pack of baying gabble ratchets. And so you can't very much say, oh, the gabble ratchets are probably just birds and then go back to looking for your pagan, um, uh, substrate. I mean, you can if you're a French scholar, but in uh, America, uh, we expect our fun ruiners to work a little harder. <laughs> but again, I mean, if what you are looking for, as I so often am, is just a big old compendium of wild hunt uh, lore, uh, this is an excellent book for that. And Lecoteau does do some fun ruining when he says, now, there's a lot of people uh, naming no names in the Victorian and uh, era and the early part of this century who just wrote down any old thing and called it the wild hunt. And you have to go back to the original lore to find the source. And he does some of that. Uh, all of his footnotes, of course, are two French sources that are available only in the Sorbonne. So there's sort of a, a uh, upper limit to how useful it is to a uh, lazy Anglophone reader. But uh, it he does 
uh, do at least some pre-sifting before going right back ahead with his I know outmoded and I'm going to just argue probably incorrect uh, theories of continuity of pagan belief. So what we've learned from this episode is that there are uh, fun enablers and there are fun ruiners. But here on this podcast, uh, there's an open playing field for them to do battle with one another and for Ken and I to uh, make things up and then deflate them, whatever we want to do. And that's what we're going to do next week when we're back with another exciting installment of this here podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphageln. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast from being swept away by a book avalanche alongside such Patreon backers as... Jake Moss. Yuri Horneman. Jeff Dean. Joss Borlace and Martin Rundqvist Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin Wear such shirts as Nod knowingly if you're a tulpa On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height And he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time when once again uh, we will talk about stuff <laughs>